BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Another Game 7, another road win in a Game 7. The Golden State Warriors will return to the NBA Finals winning 101-92. to They trailed by 15 in the first half, 13 after Houston scored the first bucket of the second half but they persevered and end up taking it behind just an incredible all-time level of shooting display by them offensively in that second half in the third quarter alone durant had 10 on six tough shots and curry had 14 on some easier shots he was four or five from three but the just the overall just shot making that those guys put out in the second half also stood in stark contrast to what was a pretty abysmal first half for the Warriors offensively but it's a reminder that if you have three of the upside down question mark best shooters of all time it can be brutal to defend them and I thought overall the Rockets did a really nice job in this series yeah it was 16 of 39 from downtown for Golden State that included 15 of 33 from the triumvirate of Curry, Thompson, and Kevin Durant. They gave up 33 three-point attempts to those guys. A lot of them were were tough looks, but nonetheless, those guys just brought it in this game. They shot, were able to get up a ton of threes, and they're able to make them. Meanwhile, Houston, historic ineptitude from downtown. Seven out of 44. They set records for the most missed three-pointers in a playoff game of 37. They set a record for the most consecutive missed three-pointers. I'm not sure whether it's in a playoff game or in NBA history, but 25 straight. I think yeah, it was period. 25 straight. And it was 27. 27 straight missed three-pointers. They missed two more after they showed the 25. <laughs> That's just absolutely, completely insane. And one of the things that we talked about when we were doing this show live, the Tour NBA show, was I think you can definitely make the argument that the Rockets outplayed the Warriors in this game. I don't know if you can make it about the series because the Warriors outscored them handily in the series. The Warriors won their four games, each of them basically by 10 or more points. This one was by nine, but it wasn't close late. It never got closer than seven late. But I thought that in this game in particular, I mean, the Rockets just had so many wide open threes from not great shooters, not great shooters, but good shooters from downtown, not Curry, Durant Thompson level shooters but good shooters and they just could not make them and so the the key stretch I thought Steph Curry got a three on that same action that was so killer where he would drive give the ball up came off of Jordan Bell Jordan Bell set a totally illegal screen in the corner on Harden but PJ Tucker in one of his few few mental lapses in the series was on Curry didn't stay with him after he gave the ball up off the drive Curry hits a three 
Then to tie it at 61, Kevin Durant on a sideline out of bounds going to his right hits a fading three-pointer from the left wing going to his right. Just such a difficult shot. That ties it at 61. Curry, same play to the opposite corner with Bell, who threw a beautiful between-the-legs pass. It's always interesting, isn't it, how Jordan Bell is on the floor for these big runs that they have? Uh, and, and not that he was that much responsible for it, but the, I think he does add an element there. Between his legs, Curry hits a three. Then, with Ryan Anderson in the game, Curry blows by Ryan Anderson for a layup. Then he hit, takes a step-back three on Anderson that rims in. Uh, then he got a fast-break three, and... Then finally, the bleeding was stanched by a bad charge call against Curry as Tucker drew it as he again uh, was able to blow by Ryan Anderson, uh, who was very much a substitute teacher in this game <laughs> for Houston. Uh, and then during that period, Houston was just plumbing the depths of missed wide open threes. I mean, they're getting so many very good looks off of just hustle or penetration or or whatever it was, and just those couldn't go down and... The shots that Curry and was getting, and KD that one time did go down, and maybe you can just say those shots were relatively open. It's just the difference between Steph Curry and Kevin Durant, and PJ Tucker and Eric Gordon and Trevor Ariza shooting the threes. But you know, still, you would expect that Houston would hit a few more than that. And I think finally they kind of just snapped after so many missed threes as they felt it slipping away from them. One of the big takeaways for me with the series, and I tried to articulate this at the end of the Twitter NBA show, was that it was well publicized that Daryl Morey and the Rockets were obsessed with the Warriors. And A, I think that obsession was right. There's also a very good piece by Dan Feldman that I, I would recommend reading on basically an admiration, this was before Game 7, of the Rockets' approach of going toe-for-toe -toe with the Warriors when so many other teams have taken steps back, including Cleveland, you know, giving up Kyrie Irving for future assets. Not saying that was, well, that was a move I praised at the time, but just noting it in, the, in contrast. And I thought the interpretation, the mentality was all correct. And, you know, given the constraints of the NBA salary cap and, you know, they did better on minimum contracts than a lot of other teams did. They did better with the mid-level exception than the Warriors did, to be damn sure. And it just ended up not being enough. Some of that is Chris Paul being out, though, of course, the Warriors were dealing with injuries, too. And, I mean, if Chris Paul had been healthy for the last two games in the series, I think the Rockets would have won. And some of it is just that it is incredibly hard to beat the Golden State Warriors. And you need to put your best foot forward all the time. And, you know, sometimes that's going to work out. They, you know, the Rockets came back down 10 at Oracle in the fourth quarter in game four. But then you can have a third quarter like they did in this game, and you can have a third quarter like they did in game six. I think the way I would say this is the Warriors are a better team than the Rockets, even at full strength. And remember, the you know, Steph Curry finally had this big game and had some big games in this series, but still, you know, probably not completely in rhythm. He, coming back from a, a two-month injury absence or, or a, a month and a half injury absence during the playoffs is actually a pretty impressive feat that we're I don't think we're giving quite enough credit to frankly but while I think the Warriors are the better team I think you could very easily argue that the Rockets deserved to win this series that I think that in the aggregate they played harder than the Warriors in the aggregate they played better defense above the potential of what their physical capability was and you know I think it you can definitely make the argument that in certain games that, that they had a, a better plan. You know, certainly in the first half today, they just completely out-hustled the Warriors. And maybe, you know, they didn't have a, enough bodies. Maybe D'Antoni should have played more guys, although I do think that's a little bit reductive. But And especially just to get up 44 three-point attempts. Now, 
maybe we're overstating that the 44 three points we can talk more about that as we get into the meat of this game we got much more to come on this but the rockets could have won the series i am not sure that chris paul would have made the difference and if the warriors had andre, andre Guadala and the rockets had had chris paul i think the warriors probably win as well but there is something just a little unsatisfying to me uh, uh, about this rockets team that you know certainly they have a lot of great players on their team as well but that you didn't get the feeling that this Warriors team in a lot of ways played to their potential, that they did just enough to win and that they kind of out-talented Houston when it was all said and done. But that's sometimes the way it works. I think the beginning of this game is a great representation of that sentiment where the idea of effort being a skill, I think, was very present. P.J. Tucker making a huge difference, but also, you know, the Warriors had players that just weren't necessarily delivering. I mean, Kevin Durant was getting worked on the defensive glass, not just because he was, you know, a smaller guy sometimes than the players he was guarding, but just because he wasn't really making an effort to box guys out, to get to the ball, all of that. And the Warriors had some defensive lapses in that first half, like they did in Game 6, where they actually defended, I thought, reasonably well overall. I thought they were actually worse in the first half of this Game 7. And going along with the idea of kind of mental lapses, Clay Thompson committing three legitimate fouls, in the beginning stretch of the game and basically taking himself out of the first quarter to his credit he actually ended up playing more in the in the second quarter and pretty much kind of kept himself in the game because of that but there was a lot oh and i didn't even mention draymond green's turnovers i mean a lot of those were just unforced flat-footed kind of passes you know thinking a guy was going to be there the warriors did a lot to get in their own way and the Rockets deserve a lot of credit for getting the Warriors out of sorts because that's what the best teams do. Cleveland has done that in certain moments of the three previous NBA Finals these teams have played against each other. But the Warriors, you know, there's this whole thing. I mean, it's been something that Anthony Slater has been following the whole year. I think a big part of why they have this crazy disparity in terms of the quarter distribution is because they don't generally get their act together until the third. Yeah, it, it does seem that way, although certainly you can make the argument that Houston just had to put so much on the line early in these games and that they just ran out of gas yeah. late. And, and we'll never know what amount of being tired had to do. But it's not like, you know, Houston was playing guys that many more minutes and at least the main guys. You know, it was Clay would have played over 40 minutes in this game. Curry played 44. I think that that's close to the most he's ever played as a Warrior. Maybe he played more than that uh, in Game 7 against Oklahoma City in 2016. Green, 44 minutes. KD, 44 minutes as well. But those guys did, and everyone was just dog-tired in the last five minutes of this game. Harden ended up with 42 in this one, and Tucker had to play 44. But he, he was 2 of 5 on 3, so you can't blame him for this miserable shooting performance. But certainly fatigue, you could say it was part of it. I think that James Harden just, you know, it was pretty clear that he wore down because when he couldn't hit that step-back three-pointer, and that was the the shot that we were so curious to see, right? I mean, I think we both thought this would be much more of an offensive series. But that shot just did not go down for James Harden in this series. That step-back three-pointer that made him unguardable in these isos all year, whether it was better defense, whether it was fatigue, whatever it was. And he hadn't even really been hitting that shot that well since March or so, other than in game ones and in these playoffs. So, And I think Golden State, maybe, while we are saying that they didn't play their best. That might not be giving enough credit to their defense, which held one of the greatest offenses of all time 
to basically, you know, a point per possession in the series, which is just an outstanding mark. And that's without Andre Guadalla for four of the games. Yeah, and it was a weird mix of, in a, in a lot of games, of making the Rockets work for shots and then, you know, these stretches where the Rockets were getting clean looks and sometimes they went in, sometimes they didn't. I thought that, you know, in game five, the Rockets were getting a ton of open looks early, but then the dam didn't break until the second half when they ended up taking control of that game. But yeah, they were, both teams were making the other ones work so hard on both ends of the four that I think that contributed as well to the fatigue. These were incredibly high pressure minutes, even though these were often low paced games, this was no exception. The amount of work in that comes with trying to defend and generate offense, especially with the way the Rockets were denying ball and man at moments in this game and every other game in this series. It just takes a lot out of you. And so it's not a surprise that so many Game 7s are rough and that this was, for the most part, other than some shot making in the second half by the Warriors star players, it fit that description. All right, we got much more to get to on this game here. But first, this from Quip Toothbrushes. The truth is that a lot of people are brushing their teeth wrong not doing it long enough, not changing your brush on time. But Quip helps you uh, avoid that. Electric toothbrushes revolutionized my brushing and Quip takes that even to the next level. It's an electric toothbrush that's basically the size of a regular toothbrush. Costs a fraction of bulkier brushes and you don't have to charge it because it just runs on one AAA battery that you change once every three months. It's got a built-in timer and it also has pulses every 30 seconds that remind you to move to a new quadrant of your mouth so you can get that full dentist recommended three minutes of brushing and then you can get into a subscription plan with them they deliver new brush heads every three months for just five dollars that includes free shipping worldwide it's also got this nice mount that you can put on a mirror or a wall if like a lot of our urban listeners you don't have a lot of counter space in your bathroom that makes it easy and then you can take that thing right off flip it around and now it's your case for travel you take it with i actually have two of them one of them I just leave it in my dap kit, which again, you know, it's got that battery. It doesn't need to be recharged. So you're not worrying about a dead battery. And the best news is that compared to most electric toothbrushes, Quip is much less expensive. It starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash capspace right now, easy to remember slash capspace. We talk about all the time here on the program. You'll get your first refill pack free with a Quip electric toothbrush. Once again, that's getquip.com for your first refill pack free or getquip.com slash capspace, I should say. G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash capspace is that URL. Once again, let them know that you came from us. Where do you want to go next here, Dan? I know we both still have a lot to say on this game, but I feel like my thoughts are somewhat disjointed on this one. Well, I want to give the stat that, that Anthony Slater has been compiling this whole year of the Warriors plus minus by quarter this season. It's, pretty, it's a regular season playoffs combined. They've been outscored by three points in the first quarter this year. Then they're plus 130 in the second, plus 501 in the third, and plus six in the fourth. That's just incredible. Yeah, and again, I mean, some of the reason for that is Steph Curry usually plays the whole third quarter, uh, but he really comes out in the third, and they do just seem to refocus it and bring a higher energy level, and that's really all that you can point to there, other than just that the rotations are good. I mean, it's the same rotations generally as in the first quarter, and... In the first quarter all season, they were negative, <laughs> negative three with the same same guys basically as in the third quarter. It's pretty insane. And then the fourth quarter, a lot of that was you know the end of blowouts, and also that they weren't the greatest clutch team in the world this year. But you know, I think it was telling that the four games they won never got into clutch time really in this series. You know, if, I think 
the Rockets might have had the advantage there. You know, in the Warriors and Rockets played four clutch games this season, including the regular season. The Rockets won all four of those. But you know, the best teams don't get into clutch time, and and for Golden State, they're able to uh, avoid that in this series. The three pointers are something that's going to come into a, a lot of discussion. And you know, they did get up forty four of them. A fair number were wide open, but only eleven were noted as wide open or, or as unguarded three-pointers on catch and shoots by synergy and they went three for 11 on those so that's not you know maybe you could expect four for 11 on those shots you know they weren't that much off uh, on those and then the guarded catch and shoots they were two out of nine and then so that was five out of 20 i mean you know that's not great but you hit two more of those and you're 35 percent right there what really though was the issue is they had to take 24 non-catch-and-shoot three-pointers in this game. They went only two out of 24 on those. Harden, 11 of his... No, actually, I'm sorry. That's wrong. 12 of his 13 three-pointers were off the dribble, and he was one out of 12 on those shots, despite the 32 points when he he really just had to get it in the lane. And then uh, I thought he was actually pretty efficient on two-pointers. He was 12 out of 16 on two-pointers, despite the fact that he only got to the foul line for eight attempts and a couple of those were outside the lane uh, the fouls I, I should say on jumpers small note it was it was 10 out of 16 not 12 out of 16 oh yeah yeah not a big deal. but yeah i mean still still pretty damn good for driving into the teeth of that warriors defense over and over again yeah and i'm sure there will be people especially people who want to see something there that will complain about the officiating and i did think that this game was called pretty defense friendly in terms of shots at the rim and that definitely helps the Warriors and hurts the Rockets in this series just as it did in game six but the overall whistle I don't think was particularly kind or unkind to either team I you know there were just there were some calls that I disagreed with with both directions and I I know that there are of course people who 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 are going to see it that way but I just you know and I'm not saying like oh you know like like Clay got three fouls that was a rough whistle it wasn't those those were all genuine calls especially Clay's third foul was completely idiotic the the first one actually probably wasn't a foul but you know it's a play that is going to get called a foul at like why you'd be reaching in yeah it's a benefit of the doubt call i mean he's already done his job by getting in front of harden on that drive in that first call so i don't know why you need to then reach in as well but yeah so you know all four of his fouls certainly i thought you know were plays that i wasn't surprised were called fouls we'll put it that way um I mean, the, the Rockets had a few bitches in the third quarter, I, I agree, like in, in terms of complaints, adequate complaints about calls, you know. Sure, the, absolutely. And those were almost all at the yeah. rim. Um, I mean, there was the Jordan Bell uh, slash Draymond Green, like double block on Eric Gordon, where Bell probably was jumping forward, although Green got him pretty cleanly. You know, that's a, that's a borderline bang-bang play. It could go either way. Uh, the Harden, what should have been, at least in Houston's eyes, a four-point play, instead it ended up just being you know, a non-shooting foul on the floor. That one, I think by the technical version of the rule should not have been a shooting foul because Thompson actually made contact with the front of Harden's jersey, you know, right before Harden brought it up through his arm. So the illegal contact did occur before the shooting motion began. That was obviously very close though. Could have gone either way there as well. But I I have no problem with the NBA making the benefit of the doubt to that being a non-shooting foul. We saw the scourge of those type of fouls last year and it just it had to be eliminated from the game so I, I don't mind that there's another one that was a non-shooting foul as well that i thought also should have been non-shooting but you know there's one that was like the seth curry charge that pj Tucker talk took that was a terrible call even by the letter of the law today um 
you know, Jordan Bell had the uh, that massive illegal screen on, on Harden on that Steph Curry three in the corner. Although, remember, of course, that Harden, a little boy who cried wolf, flopped on a play where there was almost zero contact with Draymond Green in game four, uh, where he was trying to get through a screen. And so, you know, there's a little boy who cried wolf there for Harden on that play as well. So I, I think, and the referees probably saw that, and they're like, all right, if Harden's in that situation again, you know, you're going to have to tackle the guy. Uh, and Bell almost did <laughs> to uh, to draw a foul. So I, I thought that the ref, it's hard to blame the referees for why Houston lost this one. I mean, it's really yeah. You know. Well, especially especially when they missed so many open threes. Right. You know, like, it, it, there were they had opportunities in this game, and yeah, I, I would say maybe on the balance, if you had to say it, it swung a little bit towards the Rockets. Even though, and again, these were genuine calls. The biggest effect of the officiating was was Clay missing basically the entire first quarter. And I think that's a good a good way to kind of get into some of the meat of this game is that Kerr's rotations got out of whack almost instantly because Thompson got two fouls and I think it was the first two minutes. I haven't yet done his section of my report cards for the Athletic, otherwise I would have that timing exactly in. But then they had to, you know, so they, they tried to tried to keep him in. Then he picks up a, picks up a third foul. And then, you know, that meant some Nick Young. That meant some Sean Livingston in places where they, those guys don't usually play. And the more important part for me with Thompson was the way that affected the Warriors offense because it took away one of the players who can reliably hit shots that the opposing defense has to pay attention to and replace them with somebody that Houston can help off of, something they did so well throughout the yeah, series. Kerr said in the postgame that he basically didn't recognize his team in the first half. And a lot of that, of course, was Houston great defensive effort denying out on the floor. But it was also the Warriors just, even when they weren't scoring that well early in Game 6, it looked like they were getting good looks. They were playing with force and speed and making cuts and moving the ball and doing all those little things that we talk about to try and beat the switches, little crafty things switching the angle of the screen or you know and there's there's moving hard off the ball to force them to make a decision when two guys come together of whether it's a screen or whether it isn't and there's that was almost completely eliminated in the first half i think in part because of thompson being out in part because of game seven nerves in part because of just horrendous turnovers including four in the first half by draymond green all four of which i think he threw away and in fact houston had 10 steals in the first half which was Every single Warriors turnover in the first half was a live ball turnover. But Houston took them out of what they wanted to do. But I do think that Clay being out really upset the rotations to some degree and also just what they're trying to do because they only have three guys on this team basically who can make a three-point shot. Maybe Nick Young is in there too. Maybe Quinn Cook is in there. But those guys are not you know, their premium players. So in a lot of their lineups, it was Steph, KD, and then three just total non-shooters out there on the floor. And, and Houston was able to take advantage really well by protecting the rim with guys who didn't need to guard someone, including Draymond Green, who I think was 0 for 4 on three-pointers in the first half and wasn't even close on any of them. Yeah, I've been a big to-do on the Twitter NBA show and honestly in my other writing about how bad Kevin Durant was in the first half, especially that defensive rebounding. But Draymond was pretty rough as well. I mean, not only we're talking about the the missed threes, but four pretty bad turnovers, all at least off the top of my head, all of which were enforced. And then defensively, the Warriors couldn't get into rhythm. I think part of that was Clint Capella did a really nice job in the first half. I thought that he kept the Warriors off balance on both ends of the floor. And, you know, he played 37 minutes. We had these questions about what Clint Capella could do. But I, I thought, especially in the first half, that he was an important part of their success. Yeah, and they did a nice job of finding him 
around the rim for dunks getting penetration and then the offensive rebounding as well was just incredible rockets 11 offensive rebounds in the first half tucker finished with eight for the game and he was just absolutely relentless on the offensive glass capella same thing you know we mentioned that kd in particular was getting beasted but also a lot of the problem goes to the guards i mean nick young barely gets a defensive rebound clay can get in there for them every once in a while but those guys weren't really crashing the boards curry is usually a good defensive rebounder but he didn't do much in that half so i mean because usually if you just get enough guys around the ball it's not necessarily the guy who's engaged with the offensive rebounder you can have someone else come in and because the offensive rebounder is engaged then that guy even though he's shorter can just jump over the top of him and it's not like pj tucker is that tall anyway but i mean even on a lot of these two houston had two to three guys on the offensive glass a fair amount of the time in that first half and so if the ball get tipped around some of those were getting inside position but a lot of them were just more houston guys in the area out hustling the warriors to loose balls and it was really an admirable effort from them in the first half and you just have to say that maybe they ran out of gas in the second half uh and also of course that the warriors started playing better and took care of business but so much of that is just influenced by the ball going in the basket and the effect that that has on your spirit and there is one thing too that a criticism of such three heavy offenses in today's day and age that might be a reasonable one is that just simply seeing the ball go in the basket is motivating for the other factors for a team and for a player and so even if you're scoring more points on threes to see that you know just physically the ball going in the basket is happens less often and then also that you know there's a lot of variance with threes and so you see it in, in a home crowd too right the someone shoots a three oh and then it misses ah you know and i think players kind of feel that as well you know that energy can almost infect players at times when you take a lot of threes but again you know i'm not telling anybody to stop shooting threes like this is mike d'antoni had a great quote on that afterwards but it is interesting to, to think about that that can be a drawback and that you have to be mentally strong that when the threes aren't going down you're going to continue to fight it and considering that houston missed 27 straight three-pointers to only lose this game by nine it was pretty impressive there's also something to be said for the impact of creating a three by a driving and i thought that the warriors did a much better job of that in the second half you know curry or curry just attacking off ball as moments those drives kicks and and runouts and that keeps the rest of the team engaged i mean when you when it's just kind of the dribble around and shoot a three i can also see how that's how that can be deflating you know there are these possessions but houston kept on grinding defensively i thought throughout this game maybe a little bit in the fourth quarter they took their foot off the gas at a couple moments but i thought overall they did they did a good job there it's just that they got a little bit overwhelmed by well, it well and speaking of taking also, their foot off the gas uh what did you think of the decision to go with ryan anderson as uh the, their seventh player I wasn't a big fan of it just because the remember how bad the Warriors offense was for the first half of this game, you know, more in terms of process than results. And what Ryan Anderson's presence, it's very similar to Ennis Cantor back in the 2016 Western Conference Finals. It gave the Warriors a focal point. It gave them a place to attack. Steph Curry, you know, he had mixed success, especially in the first quarter, I actually thought, or first half, I can't remember which quarter it was in, that he actually didn't do as great a job attacking Anderson. But then in the third quarter, I thought that was a big part of him finding his rhythm, getting that big that big surge in, in scoring. And Anderson has these benefits in terms of getting Draymond Green in particular away from the basket. He's such a capable rim protector. And if he's guarding Ryan Anderson... 
Draymond Green cannot be in those two places at once. We even saw that in another place where he was just defending somebody above the break, and so it went on to Kevin Durant or somebody else to protect the rim. Sometimes yeah, that works. Harden had a didn't. nice run in, in the first. I thought it didn't go too disastrously in the first with Anderson because, number one, I thought the Warriors shouldn't have had Green on Anderson. But number two, then Harden was able to get a couple of nice drives to the rim on, on Jordan Bell, and all of a sudden the help wasn't there because they were playing with Anderson at center during those minutes. Right, so that's the the idea is always the yeah. trade-off and it's the same thing with JaVale McGee you know is the guy's offense worth what you're getting at in defense and with Anderson just like with Nick Young and so many other players in this series just because it's impossible to have 10 two-way capable players especially if you have an army of wings which both these teams do and some nights that roll of the dice is going to work for you some nights it is not and I know that Luke Richard and Bob Mute was limited probably is limited as an offensive player but he competes defensively. He made the Warriors work for just about everything out there. And yeah, he he biffed a bunch of layups in, in earlier games in the series, and that was really deflating, presumably for him, but also for the team. But I don't like the idea of trying do, doing things that can try to give the Warriors life. And I thought that the Rockets, you know, that was one kind of tactical error. I thought playing Joe Johnson was kind of the same thing, unless they were going to use Joe Johnson at a point when the Warriors were not ready to attack like when clay thompson was off the floor at the end of the first quarter you know there just isn't there isn't enough of a benefit it worked out the gambles largely worked out in the first quarter but then they didn't work out in the second yeah, half. i mean anderson certainly got totally destroyed it and i think in the second half and that was you know basically when he came in it was pretty close to tied when and by the end of that third quarter golden state had the lead that ended up being maintained for basically the rest of the game and I agree with you. I, I think just in this series, especially with the ability of Golden State to just explode at any time that we saw late in that third quarter, that you just, you got to avoid ever having that substitute teacher come in and let the class get unruly, give him a place to attack. Uh, Anderson also, you know, couldn't get back in transition defense. He gave up a, a dunk to Draymond Green because he was just too slow in the first half. And so I think I would have gone with Luke just because yeah, all right, I get it. They can't score. It's a struggle, but it's just, you know, the Golden State had the better offense in this series, right? And so if you want if you start making this into anything resembling an offensive game, you're just playing right into their hands. And instead, you got to just lock down and just hope that those three-pointers start going in for your decent three-point shooters instead of like Anderson your elite three-point shooter. And then the other thing too is that, you know, the Anderson that we saw in the first game of the regular season is not the same Anderson. You know, he had that sprained ankle i think he looked noticeably heavier by this point you know he, he had spent all summer getting in shape and i just don't think whether it was physically or just that he kind of hadn't been playing and, and it's just so hard a seven game series of this intensity to have to bring a guy in who hasn't been playing in it and these guys have spent six games learning all the lessons that you need to learn about playing in this series and the level of intensity that's required and all the things about the other team's personnel and you know just to throw a guy in at the end is just so so difficult uh and, and i thought that we saw it i mean i, I don't want to say that that necessarily lost on the game and it did it probably did help on balance in the first half but you know i probably would have gone with Mbamute. but you understand why d'antoni especially he went to joe johnson the second half too another guy who they didn't really attack that much i thought they actually failed in attacking him more but when they couldn't score i mean i think they felt like the, that was the issue but to me it was just you got to make it as much of a rock fight as you can like those are the games that the the rockets won in the series when it turned into a shootout that was the warriors winning i also noticed a difference and we'll see how this carries over into the nba finals not that we're previewing it now but because cleveland and houston are such different teams in terms of how they attack 
I still think the Warriors offense just looks so much better when Jordan Bell's on the floor compared to Kevon Looney because just the prospect that he can do something smart with the ball, much less that he can actually like take a dribble and do something with it. It it is a real game changer. Looney can execute and there are times as a help defender and Bell got cooked by Harden three times in the first half. So, you know, there, there were certainly arguments on both sides of this, but it's kind of that intangible quality that we saw on those two Curry corner threes where it's like, okay, I can do something with this without it having to be coached into me. That's just, I can just read the situation and make it happen. Yeah. Jordan Bell in this series, and this doesn't separate out garbage time, and he wasn't in garbage time in game four, but 85 minutes, 125 offensive rating, 99 defensive rating for the Warriors, net rating 25.7 overall. So yeah, I mean, I mean, I think Looney, maybe a little bit better defensively, but but I thought that Bell in particular just needs to play more, uh, and at least they played him enough. And he makes yeah. mistakes. Like there was that there was that one where he basically lost the Warriors two points because he lost the ball cocking it for a dunk instead of just going up with two hands. Like those sorts of things happen with him for sure. And those, I it's funny I can identify with this because it's my own life that the mistakes linger with you more than the successes. But I feel like that's a lot of what it is with Jordan Bell, just like with with many other precocious, talented young players. And that is a balance he and the team will have to strike in the long term. But the talent and the fit, especially when he plays with Draymond Green, is pretty undeniable to me. A few other notes here. Kerr actually, you know, he left Thompson in after he gets his uh, got his fourth. And he said, Kerr said basically like he likes to leave guys in for a couple of minutes after get they get that foul, which I think is an interesting idea of, you know, just to like make him feel like he's not quite out of rhythm. He's not just being punished. He's not stewing as much about getting that foul when he goes to the bench he can kind of stay in rhythm i think you know a lot of times guys get taken out for foul trouble and then they come back in and they've just been thinking about the foul the whole time they're kind of out of it so i, I actually kind of like that strategy if you decide you have to take the guy out but that big run that the warriors had actually happened without clay thompson on the floor I, we were critical of that decision it turned out that that worked reasonably well although uh dang would you care to guess how many fouls clay thompson finished with the same number as his splash brother compadre steph curry who picked up a couple late four yeah and so but that did work out for Kerr one of the biggest sequences of the game Nick Young almost immediately after he came in didn't appear to know who he had I don't want to put on him for sure but I'm guessing probably with him being the new guy in the game and also being a a little less heady also being Nick Young uh, they give up a wide open corner three miss it Houston gets the rebound they throw it back out top Young takes you know he's at least trying to hustle for the ball but didn't really have much chance of getting it and then they throw it to Gordon for another wide open three, which misses. And then the Warriors push it down and get their own three from Nick Young. That was a huge sequence. Again, Young was wide open on the transition, but that was big With right after Clay went out with about eight minutes left. Oh, I have something I oh, want yeah. to talk about. We we talked, this was a big fun topic on the Twitter NBA show. The missed free throws in this game. The Rockets missed, ended up 13-22, so they missed nine. Capella was two of six. P.J. Tucker missed two, and then, you know, Harden and Gordon both shot well. It's just that they, by volume, missed a couple. And then the Warriors, 7 of 14. Durant missed a series of them early. Klay Thompson had an 0 for 2 trip to the line. It, it was just a, a strange game for that because you don't really think of, and especially because a lot of the misses were early in the game, free throws being a fatigue-related issue. It was just kind of shows that these guys were a little bit off and, you know, the, the maybe the intensity of the game, but it could just be random chance. Yeah, and you mentioned Capella. All six of his free throws were via intentional fouls. Kerr went to it once when they were in the bonus. I think it was in the first quarter, and Capella missed yep, two. Yep, they brought in Quinn Cook for two seconds. Yeah. Capella missed two. 
And then in the fourth quarter, as Houston was down 10 or so, they went to it a couple of times. Of course, you can't do it once two minutes remain in the quarter. What did you think of just the decision to do that? It, it, it seemed to work out, uh, but what were your thoughts on that? There were a couple parts of this the second time that were weird. So the first time they brought in Quinn Cook, he fouled the Capella. Actually, I, I'm trying to remember if Capella came out right away, but Quinn Cook definitely came out right away. In the fourth quarter, the Warriors made kind of two hack of mistakes. One is they weren't letting enough time go off the clock. They were just doing it pretty early. So there were, you know, I think Capella had four free throws that took place in about 20 seconds, and that included a Warriors possession in between. And then they also didn't have personnel on, despite having some stoppages around then, to just put in a player who's a good fit for that. Oftentimes that would be somebody who is capable offensively, limited defensively, not a key part of the rotation, who could just commit those fouls. That's what Cook did. Nick Young could serve that purpose. You know, there, there are a series of other kind of potential fits. And incidentally, JaVale McGee could be, could be one of those as well. And that was a little bit weird. And so, so you kind of had the Rockets getting extra possessions, which is exactly what you, you don't want. And the Warriors kind of combined that at moments with a prevent offense when they were just kind of like, oh, you know, bouncing the ball around a little bit. And they that was one of the things that got them into trouble against New Orleans in the closeout game of that series was they they just didn't really have that idea of, okay, let's let's just take them out of it, you know, work to get a good shot, but be judicious. And then on the other end, you know, defend well, make the Rockets use the shot clock. It, it I think it gave their players, a men- the Warriors players, a mental out that ended up not being useful for them. Another interesting stat in this game, for all those who were like, oh man, Houston, like they're just shooting too many jumpers, like they're shooting threes, it's so soft. The Rockets had 56 points in the paint and the Warriors had 28. Uh, and D'Antoni, you know, was asked after the game too, of like, you know, is there any time that you feel like, hey, we needed to change our strategy here? And he looked down at the stat sheet and he's like, you know, I might think that. But then our opponents, I'm paraphrasing here, shot five fewer three-pointers than we did. And the only difference was that their three-pointers went in. (laughs) So, no, I think shooting threes is the right strategy still. I thought that overall, Steph Curry played a great defensive series, given, like, what his capabilities were. I thought that he did a pretty darn good job in isolation on Harden. Early on in the first couple of games, especially game one, you know, it looked like it might get ugly, but he largely avoided fouling. You know, did he spend any time in this series in foul trouble? I can't remember. Maybe in one of the first couple of games but it largely was able to avoid that the Warriors just in general were just so good defensively avoiding fouls and Curry was also excellent off the ball got a lot of strips executed on help side he had some big rebounding games as well so I I thought that he really held up defensively in far better than could have been expected I think that Harden to some degree it was the same but he still did have his errors. He still was getting attacked. I thought that he was, you know, if you wanted to say between Harden guarding Curry and Curry guarding Harden, I would pick Steph Curry to score more points, uh, you know, partially with this team around him, than I'd pick Harden to score uh, on Curry. So I think it, Curry deserves a lot of credit for his defense, which obviously is something that's maligned. And he'll, of course, have another equally, if not bigger, equally large, not bigger challenge coming up uh, against the Cavaliers in the next round. I'm trying to think if I have any any other big takeaways from this. Well, uh, let's just talk about a, a little bit, uh, and if you think of something else, let me know. But like, just like how what we thought of this series and these teams coming in, and, and you know how that differed. This series differed from what our expectations were. Well, I think what 
struck me overall, and this was seeing some of the games in person, watching all the other ones, of course, on tape or on over the TV, was how consistently the Rockets were engaged and executing versus versus how frequently the Rock the Warriors were engaged and executing. You know, the Rockets were on it early in almost every game, and they were on it almost all of every game, and. The Warriors, you know, they could they they played the talent game to a point. They, you know, there were moments where they were engaged. They would get all mad. They would get all mad when they made mistakes. But they didn't they didn't have those elements. And you need that most of the time, almost all the time, to beat the Warriors. And I was impressed that Houston did that because playing Golden State, just like playing Houston, takes so much out of you. I think the biggest thing that differed from my expectations was just how little Houston was able to score. Uh, I mean, they had a 100.3 offensive rating for this series. And, you know, it really wasn't much difference with Chris Paul in uh, or not. You know, I think the fact that Kevon Looney and Steph Curry and Jordan Bell, that the Warriors were able to actually be as effective defensively as they were in this series. And I'm sure the Rockets missed a lot of shots that they would love to have back. But generally, the Rockets were taking more off the dribble threes than catch and shoot. And so, I, I, I mean, this Rockets offense is one of the the greatest of all time but I, I think you know if you compare for example the way cleveland was able to score on the warriors in last year's finals versus the way that the rockets were able to score in this series and there's really no comparison i think like cleveland the only way the warriors were able to win that series last year was just by straight up outscoring cleveland and now the rockets if you play ryan anderson you know maybe you're you're scoring a lot better you know, but they didn't want to do that. They wanted to focus on defense. I think that was the correct strategy. They, they certainly did did well. But uh, so, and this wasn't necessarily the Rockets team and, and offense that we saw all year, especially because Anderson wasn't playing. Nene wasn't playing at all either. I mean, it wasn't necessarily quite the same personnel, although I don't know that Nene would have helped them offensively in the series. But yeah, that, that was probably the biggest difference to me. I, I mean, and obviously I didn't think that the Rockets, I, I thought the Rockets could give the Warriors problems relatively i didn't think it would be obviously to this type of degree as it ended up being although i guess it's worth noting that overall for the series the warriors still did have a 112 offensive rating which is not best in the nba level but it's still like pretty damn good uh against this great houston defense but they had houston had stretches full games you know really three games where they made the warriors look awful uh, offensively maybe yeah. well yeah and that was a point that was a point that adam wartson made that I thought was interesting after the game where his concept and I haven't gone through and checked the numbers on this is that he said the Warriors won a seven game series with six dominant quarters of basketball and that sounds about right to me and they're capable of doing that like that that's just how how ridiculous this can be what will you remember most about this series when we we look back and I mean it's not it's not quite the level of a classic like that OKC golden state one was both for its during series and after series implications especially with this warriors you know the the stakes there with that warriors 73 win season on the line and steph curry unanimous mvp and you know then the fact that katie ended up going to the warriors in, in large part because they lost and that incredible performance by thompson and you know i i definitely leave this series feeling that the warriors were a better team although again as i said i think the rockets kind of deserve to win more although that you know deserving got nothing to do with it ultimately but so i don't think this is a series on, on that type of classic level certainly a, a very memorable series but what, what will you remember the most out of this series from the in-person time i think it'll be the combination of the third quarter and fourth quarter of game four 
where the Warriors had that, you know, Golden State third quarter, and then Houston just battled their way back and, you know, hit some shots, made the Warriors offense look just completely awful. And sure, the Warriors helped out with that too. And then, you know, I think what I'm going to remember is feeling a little bit hollow after this series, because while, you know, Iguodala missing those games certainly changed the tenor of the series, I think, you know, you could make a good argument that if he were playing, that the series would have been over in five or six. But, you know, the Rockets really miss Chris Paul, and it's a part of playoff basketball that the circumstances will change on a dime, and it is unfortunate for the Rockets that it it went so heavily against them. And I mean, how memorable, you know, Chris Paul was in game four and game five of this series. But those are those are the two big things. I mean, the juxtaposition in game four and then just kind of the feeling at the end. Yeah, and maybe I think we'll probably we'll look back on this and remember it as feeling more inevitable than it really was as we were going through these games, right? You know? Well, I mean, remember the beginning of game six. I mean, the that building was shook. Like they, they, the, you know, the, the Rockets came out without Chris Paul and just beat the crap out of the Warriors in that game. Yeah, 39-22 after the end of the first quarter. And in this game, I mean, I thought it even looked worse for the Warriors at halftime of this game than it did in game six. They weren't playing at home. The offense uh, looked horrible. I mean, this was, you know, Houston was considered a 60% favorite by the betting markets at, at halftime of this game. And so I think that that's something important to remember. And while we can certainly criticize the Warriors for the lack of execution defensively in the first half of game one uh, of game six offensively in the first half of game seven so i i felt like the warriors still could have folded you know i think that there are a lot of people who would have felt like golden state would do that and they didn't show a lot of mental toughness in some of these games like in game four for example but they were able to come back with those massive third quarter rallies and those were pretty memorable and then just ultimately the incredible talent of steph curry and Kevin Durant and they really only had one game in this series where both of them went off the way that they're capable of it and it was this game and then even going into the fourth quarter we haven't talked about Durant's game enough I mean he he still he actually set a Western Conference Finals record for most points in a series with 213 here despite some of the highs but he 34 points on 11 of 21 just those two absolutely deflating fadeaways no dribble over eric gordon just all over him uh that kept the rockets at bay in the fourth were huge and he came back had three blocks in this game five assists as well so he was able to make a comeback from what had been a really rough middle three games or so of this series well i think that ties in with something that i've been thinking about a lot in this series and it actually was a question we got on the show which is you know like the the aura of inevitability that some people are giving the Warriors to me is is misguided. And I think this series is a great example of why is that the beauty of NBA basketball is that the best of the best, the margins are really, really thin. And this series could have gone differently a, a number of different ways. I mean, you know, a couple of different missed shots in three and four and more accurately four and five. And it looks it looks really different. You know, if the Rockets hit a couple of shots in either game six or game seven, probably game seven more likely, it looks really different. And that's great. You know, that that's the fun of this. No team is invulnerable. And yes, there will always be a favorite and an underdog, but a team that works their asses off, has a really good game plan, has the right personnel to execute that game plan, they can absolutely win. Cleveland did it in 2016. The Thunder almost did it, probably should have done it in 2016. And the Rockets nearly did it this year. 
Yeah, now we turn to a, an NBA Finals, which we'll be previewing later in the week. Uh, although, interesting to note that Golden State considered massive, massive favorites. Uh, I think about six to one, seven to one favorites uh, going in here. Although, if I'm misstating that, uh, please uh, let me know, gamblers. I think the last thing I want to close with, though, on this series is just that this was this is the absolute pinnacle uh, of what NBA basketball is uh right now in 2018 the switching the versatility the three-pointers i mean all during the regular season nobody could hold a candle these teams i it would have been very interesting to see what might have happened in a houston cavaliers finals especially if chris paul were unavailable it was reported before the game he had a grade two hamstring strain he just there's we knew there was no way he was gonna be able to play anything more than token minutes even if he could get out there i mean that's you know it's a three-week injury from james harden at least uh which you know that's what ramona shelburne compared it to harden missed three weeks during the regular season and granted you can come back earlier from a hamstring injury it's just you have a risk of re-injury but you know i don't think paul was ever in position to do that but the switching the stuff that you have to do to counter the switching and then just how low the margin for errors were just on a possession to possession basis uh, dylan murphy was tweeting about this how just every mistake it seemed like got punished but it was just so incredibly hard to even create those mistakes to begin with i mean this was just such high level of basketball i mean there were times in the series where it felt like neither team could score you know uh, and there are other times when the floodgates opened but it was just every possession was just being played at, at such a high level and on such a knife's edge every time and it was just i mean when you saw that even with these great teams they could only each come up with basically like six and a half players to play every game especially once Iguodala and paul went down that uh i was just amazed at how high the quality of basketball was even when the games were ugly you know just seeing this it's like yeah this is happening because these teams are, are playing so well and i think especially just houston's strategy not only switching but then denying everything on the switches as well and just the level of pressure that they placed it in this series i think i don't want to say it necessarily forced golden state to a higher level because it it, it was a, eventually a lot on talent that they won this especially in game seven i thought in game six they really did get to a higher level offensively but maybe not as much in game seven but it still was just a they it took everything that the warriors had it seemed like in this series and i just i really credit the houston rockets because you know everyone felt like the nobody was going to have a chance against this Warriors team going into the season and uh they sure as hell had a chance and and they'll unfortunately going to be kicking themselves at the chances that they missed that was a big theme of James Harden's presser at the end something else I wanted to mention that was really exciting about this series was to get the answers to questions about who belonged and you know PJ Tucker I thought his effort level was absolutely incredible Eric Gordon was up and down to be sure but I, I love the way that he drove and he had some real highlights defensively, you know, missed a bunch of threes in this game. That was, that was kind of the part that was hit or miss for him. It seemed at many points in the series like he was better at those hard contested threes than the other ones. But, you know, Gerald Green gave the Rockets some really good minutes in this series. Capella, you know, we were wondering whether he was going to be forced to the fire. And I actually think D'Antoni didn't give him enough. I thought I thought that they looked better a lot of times when Capella was on the floor. The way that Capella made Draymond Green fear him and, and stick with him as opposed to being the monster rim protector even though he was right there you know like that 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 kind of dynamic was really fascinating to me and then on the Warriors side they had fewer question marks just because they've been in this kind of a situation before but you know I thought Jordan Bell 
I think he overall comes out of that series looking pretty good. I think Kevon Looney's coming out looking okay as well. And then we'll see what happens with the, the kind of the rest of the rotation. But I was encouraged by how many, you know, I, I thought it was going to be guys falling by the wayside more and more. And, and Bob Mute, you could say that was largely due to injury. But generally speaking, I think guys stepped up. Yeah, and Bob Mute's injury is something we probably didn't talk about uh, enough either, although I still, I, I sort of think that the Rockets could have defended much better at, at a lot of these times, even if he were out there. But you have to go back. I mean, I think offense was the problem for the Rockets in this series. And I do think to some degree they have to go back to the drawing board here because you talked about how they're obsessed with the Warriors, and they certainly were defensively, and they came up with a pretty good strategy defensively. But offensively, you know, I, I, I think you do have to conclude that the offensive strategy may not quite have been good enough here. You know, and, and not like the in-series strategy, but just the system in general. Just, all right, switch, James Harden, that's it. You're just going to go one-on-one. You know, whether it was not attacking enough, and they probably need to get more ball handlers, although certainly those types of players do not play the type of defense that they felt like they needed in the series. But I think it was just the load on Harden, the load on Paul, even when those two guys were both available, was just too much in this series. I mean, those guys just had to create too much, too many times. And especially when that step back three wasn't quite falling for Harden at the crazy rate it was the first four months of this season, you know, it just wasn't possible for them to score quite enough in this series. Uh, And so I I do think they need to look at just getting, you know, if they could get five more buckets a game that are actually system buckets or just, you know, James Harden, hey, as soon as you get the switch on Looney, you're just going to attack before he gets into position instead of, all right, I'm going to dance with the ball for 15 seconds. You know, just to get a little bit more. I mean, the same types of things that the Warriors eventually had to get to in terms of their ball movement and their plays to beat the switch. Every once in a while, the Rockets would get it on called plays out of timeouts, but, you know, they just were a little bit behind the Warriors in terms of their offensive system. And I thought that that made a difference. They're going to have to come up with something more, at least a little bit more variety. And that's far easier said than done. I mean, these switching defenses make everybody look bad at this point. But whether it's, you know, we're going to have more uh, off-ball movement, whether it's, hey, we're, we're going to try to play with the pass a little bit more, get it to guys who, who can drive off of even just like mini closeouts like a Gordon or something like that. You know, a few more set plays to take advantage of switching defenses, whatever it is. I think that the Rockets did fall short a little bit in that area. Um, what did you think overall uh, of Harden's series? You know, was he, did he live up to his MVP designation, which he will surely win this year? I mean, he had a couple of, a couple of really nice moments, including some in losses that was, I'm trying to remember which game. Was that game three that he had, or game four? No, it was game three where he had like a nice stretch, but then they ended up getting blown out anyway. And overall, I would say that he he probably didn't, but in a way that was unsurprising. Like there there's this parallel that I've made before between Harden and DeMar DeRozan, and I, I Harden is a vastly superior player. That's kind of why this works, is that what makes them so great in the regular season just has a lower success rate when they face superior competition. Both guys rely a lot on getting to the line and just having unusual skill sets that can work, but that the more comfortable you get with them and the more training you can do, it takes away a lot of what they do. And then then it gets to the point of kind of like, can they put it together enough to make it work? And in certain games they can, and in certain games they cannot. And so I didn't expect the world from Harden in this series, and I don't think I got it. I thought maybe you could play a little bit better than he did. Um, his stats for the series, 30% from three, 
I'm sorry, no, that's actually for the playoffs. He was 30% from three in this series. Yeah, he was 24 in this series. I mean, he got up 11 three-point attempts per game, and he made only less than three per game of those. And then 7.4 free throw attempts per game. Not as much as probably needed to be. Five turnovers a game. Only six assists per game as well was huge. I think, you know, again, the the Warriors took him out of that. And 28.7 points per game, but just not quite as good as he needed to be. And we said that for them to win, that he would need to be the best player in this series, clearly. And, you know, that is, in theory, what an MVP should do, is be the best player in any series. And the Rockets really did it not because of his brilliance you know it was the defense that was incredible you know his biggest game even was game one when he had the 41 but you know he was so bad defensively in that game you know that that's a big part of how they lost that that first game i think that that first game is one that they can really look back on and kind of kick themselves because that's the one game in the series that you know their defense through the entire game really was bad so no i i think that he did not play as well as i was hoping he'd play in this series we talked about this too on the show who is the best player in this series? I mean, you'd be nearly impossible to figure that out. I guess you'd probably be Kevin Durant. Yeah, I mean, statistically, it probably was Durant. Finished with 30.4 points, 5.7 rebounds on 46% shooting, almost 40% from three. But I would probably go with Stephen Curry as the most valuable player in this series because he, you know, offensively, it just works for the Warriors when he's on the floor. And I mean, the foul trouble that he got into in game one you know that ended up you know it was important within that game the Warriors did end up winning it but I think that another key to this series was that starting in around game four Curry started playing better defense and that did help you know they ended up losing game four and five but I thought he did a better job and that helped kind of set the tone all right well that'll wrap this up but we have more we got to do some offseason previews we got the Denver Nuggets ready for you we'll get to the Rockets in Boston later this week as well obviously as some more scouting reports i know everyone's particularly interested to know what those teams can do this offseason so we'll get to denver momentarily but first this from uncharted i live in the bay area and i'd probably actually been remiss in not getting an an earthquake kit and then i was actually put in in touch with uh, uncharted supply company and they've designed a survival system to help you act quickly and confidently when the unexpected happens, 95% of all survival situations are resolved in 72 hours. But those 72 hours can mean the difference between survival and not. Their 72 survival system contains tools and instructions you need to survive in a hurricane, an earthquake, any emergency situation. And it all fits in just basically a backpack that weighs 11.5 pounds. If it's easily under a desk, you can keep it in your car as well. It's organized by need. You can get food and water, shelter and warmth, or first aid. They've got 35 high-quality tools. They're organized, and they all have simple instructions as well. All of these have been vetted by experts, the military, first responders, mountain guides, doctors, and more. The 72 is the product that every home, office, and car in America should have. Right now, my listeners can get $50 off at unchartedsupplyco.com when you use that cap space code at checkout that's fifty dollars off your survival system with that familiar cap space code at checkout we'll be talking about the cap space situation for the denver nuggets here shortly use my code cap space again at uncharted supply for fifty dollars off and let them know with that cap space code that you came from us let's turn now to the denver nuggets off season a team with some clear needs and some clear dilemmas as well and so why don't you talk a little bit danny about what their cap situation is, and then we can discuss that in the context of Nikola Jokic. 
Denver faces a complicated scenario in terms of their finances because they are about 14.7 million. So you want to use 15, that's fine. Under the tax, assuming Wilson Chandler and Darrell Arthur pick up their options, I expect that both of them will. And that money, you know, theoretically, let's say they're not willing to pay the tax, that probably needs to go to Nikola Jokic. And if they want to bring back Will Barton or anybody else, they want to go in. That does include their draft pick, which is 14th overall. And another thing to kind of keep in the back of your mind when thinking about this Denver offseason, it's very unusual in terms of their timeline, because even if they pay Jokic, Denver could still have max space next summer if they clear out Paul Millsap, because they just have all this all this suboptimal money coming off their books after the 2018-19 season. Yeah, and that suboptimal money, you mentioned Chandler, Darrell Arthur, uh, 7.5 million Chandler 12.8 million Chandler was considered a lock to opt out this year which might have made things either easier though they do desperately need help uh, on the wing defensively in particular Kenneth Fareed 13.8 million a contract that was considered a decent one you'll recall that that was agreed to after he had that big summer like Kenneth Fareed was the starting power forward on the 2014 USA World Cup team and he basically hasn't played in two years now well, and remember how lucky the Nuggets are that they tried to sign him to a five-year deal, but since it wasn't the max, they had to they got made it a four-year deal. Yeah, that's right. It, it was initially reported as five years, sixty million, but you can only do five years in an extension if it is the max, uh, at least a rookie extension. So they've got all that money coming off the books, and then Millsap has a team option for thirty point five million, which, based on his production last year, they are very, very unlikely to pick up. Uh, Millsap making 29.7 this year after actually made his salary declines a little bit he was made 31.3 last year and so that that's all great for 2019 but for this year this has been uh, I think it's fair to say a somewhat cheap organization they one of the few teams that don't have a G League team they definitely spent quite a few years here where they were well below the salary cap and did the machinations that you could under the old CBA to take on salary at the trade deadline. So you nominally met the salary cap, but actually had to pay out far less money. But now, and if they could get away with it, you'd think, oh, we got a team option on Nikola Jokic for next year. It's only 1.6 million. Like, let's just exercise that. And then, uh, but the problem is, since this, he just completed his third year, he can be a restricted free agent right now. And you can basically ensure that you're going to keep him for another five years they have full bird rights yeah it'd be great to have him for the minimum this year but then he could just leave and the odds of that are certainly higher considering that you just pissed him off when you had a chance to pay him more and chose not to right the precedent here the most notable one is actually Chandler Parsons so Parsons had this because he was both these guys were high performing second round picks that had an option for the final year and Parsons was declined. He ended up signing somewhere else, signing with the Houston Rockets. No, sorry, signing with the Dallas Mavericks. But this is a different situation. Jokic is a much more established player than Parsons was at that time. And, and you, you can't take the risk of letting him go. It would be theoretically possible to agree to an extension, but I see no reason why Jokic would even engage on it. Because yeah, there would be some risk mitigation, but from a tactical standpoint, you want to get that money as soon as you can. Well, and, and the they couldn't. The they option. couldn't pay him more than uh, 
to Josh Richardson for an extension. Oh, that's anyway. right. So yeah, that's right because he wouldn't be eligible. You're right. So that is pretty much off yeah. the table. But so yeah, it so it is a real challenge for Denver. You know, you just kind of have to deal with it. That's the problem of drafting a really good guy in the second round. It's it's a good problem to have, but it is a problem. And you brought up the idea of you know the 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 expenses, and I looked it up because I hadn't I hadn't known the exact number. Stan Kroenke. The Kroenke family owns the Nuggets and the Rams and a couple other teams. Stan Kroenke is worth eight point one billion dollars. It's not that much, really. And yeah, it's just it's just changed. I mean, we'll we'll be there soon enough, I'm sure. But it's a one time thing. And the biggest part I talked about this, I can't remember if my preview for them on the Athletic has come out yet. Is what makes this situation so frustrating as a kind of a, a commentator, not even as a fan of the team, is that there is not a way for Denver to clear money if they want to avoid the tax without making their team materially worse. There is not this, you know, silver bullet of like a good player, but replaceable player who somebody else wants. Fareed, not a positive value right now in his contract. Mason Plumley, probably not a positive oh, value on oh, his contract. That oh, was oh you think giving. so? Hey, he's a gold medalist. I'm going to be yeah, polite. Well, and, and his but, agent's Mark Bartlestein, so he gets 50% more than he's worth. Uh, it's just written in stone. <laughs> it's amazing. And so that means there are a couple different pathways here. One is losing Will Barton, I think, would really hurt them. They needed Barton this year, especially with Wilson Chandler disappointing. I, I don't think he's the perfect solution for their issues on the perimeter, but he is a good basketball player, and he creates off the bench he can create in the starting lineup if that's where they need him he often closes games for them that's one way another way is to use a first round pick they have the number 14 overall because they were the best team that didn't make the playoffs they could use that to unload somebody but all of those solutions are sacrificing something they could also give away some of their young players they have Wancho who we both really like Malik Beasley who theoretically could be the replacement for Will Barton as well but all of those things are are real sacrifices for a one-time payment yeah, and maybe you know you could see them. All right, we'll, we'll stretch Kenneth Fareed, right? Okay, or we'll stretch Darrell Arthur. Well, now you're hurting the your cap space in the summer of 2019. You know that, that's uh, another problem. So they're definitely, and and especially when you consider that this is a team if they want to be competitive this year. And I don't think that management is in any trouble there, but certainly Mike Malone is going to be under massive pressure if they have a poor start. You could see him getting fired very easily. I he's actually another one of those guys just kind of similar to Dwayne Casey where I think I probably would have just moved on from him I haven't seen enough from him to know that he's a good coach in these couple of years and so and he's got this no nonsense defense reputation but they don't really defend and uh, just a, another guy who kind of seems like he has to be dragged kicking and screaming into the modern era and, and that you're always just kind of like fighting against him uh to play in a modern style so I probably would have moved on from him but they did not do that Part of your problem there, though, is that if you you disappoint at the start of the year and then you feel like you have to move on from him, well, of course your your new coach doesn't have a training camp and blah blah. So I think it's going to be tough, though. They're just going to have to count on internal improvement from the likes of Jamal Murray and Jokic, and hope that Millsap can play better this year. He's a year older, but he won't have that wrist injury, and they'll hopefully have more ability to integrate him. So they have those guys, but. Will Barton is a huge part of this team. He's a free agent. Uh, he is someone who they have talked about potentially extending. And apparently they offered him, you know, the biggest extension that they could, the Josh Richardson, four years, a little over 40 million. And Barton turned that down. I'm skeptical that Barton, unless a sign and trade is involved, is going to get as much of that on the open market. But what a guy could get on the open market has never stopped these guys from overpaying as as Mason Plumley is a perfect example of that 
but maybe the tax will cow them a little bit and they'll try to play hard a little more hardball with barton but they really need barton you know they need one more score so you can do something off the dribble off the bench and, and as we've noted there really aren't that many of those guys available unless they feel like gary harris can take on more of a playmaking role and that he could play in the second unit they're going to need one more guy who can do something off the dribble on this team for next year and that's not even to talk about their other biggest need which is someone who can play some defense uh, on the wing i think chandler you know really struggled throughout this year and he's in his early 30s hard to expect that uh, he wasn't good enough last year and there's no reason to think he's going to be better this year so you're really at this point then this is a very limited group with their tax concerns if they max out Jokic, which seems pretty inevitable maybe they'll be able to negotiate just a little bit of a discount but you probably want to just get him for five years too i mean they yeah i think the bucks would love to have that fifth year for Giannis right now you know uh despite the fact that they would have had to pay more for it and this year also like the nuggets can also get a fifth year since it's not an extension they could get a fifth year maybe it's slightly below the max and maybe that's something they can negotiate as far as uh letting Jokic out of the team option but you have to imagine he'll be pretty close to 25 million for next year and so with that and with that 14th pick no Will Barton no Devin Harris who gives them some decent play at backup point guard they'll need another backup point guard too this team is already 12 million dollars over the tax 22 million dollar tax payment like they are not paying that there's no way like I, I mean it's certainly in having some conversations with the organization the party line is well, we only have to pay the tax for one year. We've kind of been saving money. And, you know, all right, may, I, I could see you paying like Wizards last year level of tax, like $5 million over the tax, maybe. But there, you can like, I will dye my hair nuggets blue if they end up paying $22 million in luxury tax this year. So they're going to cut something. They are. And I don't know exactly what it's going to be. And as you said, you know, stretching players creates other consequences. And the other issue here... I'm guessing we'll we'll see what you know what Connolly and Karnasovas have to deal with here is the issue of timing because they have a lot of these small kind of palatable Arthur at 7.5 million like that's not a huge ordeal for another team to go at but they cannot start the offseason there because the teams that are going to have space aren't going to know how much they have to work with for probably two weeks, maybe as much as a month, depending on how long it takes the free agent carousel, you know, guys like LeBron and George, and then everybody that waits for them to cycle down. Like we saw that with Jamal Crawford. I think that took like six, seven days last year, but I think it'll be a little bit elongated this year. And that's a challenge when you have a first round pick, you know, like if they wanted to use that because you you drive it off the lot that that player loses value unless you draft Donovan Mitchell and he looks great in summer league. Oh, wait, never mind. And it's going to be a real like there isn't really a way to, to do this except for playing the waiting game and playing the waiting game is a really hard way to manage a luxury tax bill. Yeah, especially this year when there are going to be so many teams that are impacted trying to get under the tax. And when there are a few teams with cap space, some of them, you know, you could see the Bulls or maybe the Hawks kind of waiting around to see, you know, what could they can extract at the deadline. But it, I mean, there's got to be a lot of fear, as you mentioned, because you could just get stuck with a huge luxury tax bill. And I don't think that's in their budget, to be sure. Oh, one more, one other related thing with that going in with Will Barton is an option theoretically could be signing and trading Will Barton because I'm sure there are teams that are interested in him that do not have the cap space or the full middle level to sign him outright. Problem with that is the other team has to send back salary right. and then you create an, an issue there. And so, and now with the, the rules that you can't basically, miss, you can't expand that number with non-guarantees 
it's going to be a lot harder to make the math work, especially at the number that Will Barton wants. So it's a possibility worth mentioning, but it is going to be a limitation. And like so many other teams in that circumstance, Denver w- has the ability to walk away and that gives them leverage because they are the way to make make some of those deals happen. But that doesn't really leave them any better in the end unless they can scare off enough suitors to get Barton to come back on a discount. But I mean, that's that's its whole a whole other thing. And the Nuggets... One of the big disappointments of this season for them, beyond not making the playoffs, and you know there were injuries and some bad luck that went in there, is that none of their young players really stepped into a place where where you feel comfortable with them replacing players on the roster. I thought Lyles had a good year, and he's he's a backup point guard. He is not a replacement for Millsap. Back, any back of power forward, you mean? Sorry, back of power forward. And Malik Beasley didn't really. I he didn't really do much this year. We talked about him a little bit in the young prospects thing, which was yeah. like a month and a half ago. Feels like, but. He's not a replacement for Will Barton at, the, at this juncture, and they traded away Emmanuel Moutier. You know, that money you know, can be used. They could get a minimum point guard who will probably be more productive than Moutier, but they still have to actually get that guy, and that's going to be a challenge. So this parallels a couple other teams for me of the real differentiator, differentiator in ownership is not necessarily the giving up assets to cut salary. It's also the opportunity cost of what they could have done, because you could think about what Denver's team could look like if they were willing to pay the tax for next year. You know, they could bring back Barton. They could use probably the taxpayer. They'd use the taxpayer mid-level exception, bring Jokic back, and they would be a really good team. And that is not going to be what the Nuggets look like on October 17th, 2018. Now, maybe the trade could be, we've kind of said this as a rule of thumb, that $20 million in bad salary equals one first-round pick. It used to be 10 back back in the day, you know, early in this decade. Caps about doubled since then. That's just a, a slight rule of thumb. Although, if you look at what the Bulls were able to get for taking on about a year and a half of Ashik, I mean, that was more like $15 million in bad salary because that half of last year had already expired. But then they also gave up a really good player in Nikola Miritich to do that. So maybe maybe if the Nuggets just said, hey, 2019 unprotected first round pick, if we can get someone to take Kenneth Fareed and Darrell Arthur, that's basically $21 million in salary, almost $22 million in salary, That we would do that. Would you do that if you were the Nuggets? It's basically just to save yourself money this year. I mean, there's no, but, it, but if the edict comes down from ownership, hey, you know what, it's either stretch these guys and get under or find a way to trade them and clear that money off. Would you just give up a first round pick to do that? Your owner has told your Ugh. owner has told you we cannot be in the tax this year. Or I mean, I don't think I, like I said, I don't think they like will be like, oh, we can't be in the tax. But if they're more than five million dollars over the tax, or if they're if they finish the year over the apron, which is six million over the tax, again, a big surprise for me. Oh, so yeah, I mean, if it's unprotected. Yeah. I don't see this team being truly awful next year. Like even if they got a bunch of injuries, yeah. I think that's or maybe it's be maybe like it's top, top three pick. protected, you know, or top sure. four, I guess yeah. now in, the, in this new regime with yeah. the new reform. If that was the edict, I think you'd have to seriously consider. It. As frustrated as I would be by it, I mean, there aren't really that many other options if if that's the job constraint that you're dealing with. And even if they had to cut that money, I don't think they would have enough to pay Barton. Like they, that would just that would basically just be to get under the tax. Maybe they could use the mid level on like a, a portion of it on somebody else. Yeah, I, but, I'm also not really that interested in paying, uh, giving Will Barton a, a four year contract at above true. the mid level. Like that's I don't think it's going to well, work but out this, too this well. This ties in with this ties in with with another problem that we've talked about with numerous other teams, which is 
at below the mid level or the full mid, the you know the the non taxpayer mid level, if their biggest need is a small forward, good luck. Like you, they're they're going to be it would be taking a a huge risk. You're basically throwing a lottery ticket, and you know I I think those guys are more in the like taxpayer MLE range. You know, Ennis Harris doesn't bring any of the defense that they want. Maybe you know like one of the flyers like Travion Graham or Glenn Robinson, but. Yeesh, like that. I but I guess I would do it just because you can't roll the dice on somebody having space late in the game and you having the best offer. Like maybe that is a possibility later on. Is that you know like that you if you hold out long enough, but there's no guarantee that the Bulls are going to wait to spend their money. And remember, the Bulls in particular might have a little bit of a ticking clock with their space because of Zach Levine, depending on how much they end up paying him. So. There are so many teams that are going to be looking to shed money. I would rather be early on it than late. Ugh. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I think you kind of, you just have to do it because you could just get caught. And then once you get past September 1st, you can't stretch guys anymore. So that's another problem. I mean, your other option would be just stretch both Fareed and Arthur. And that would that would save you about $13 million this year. You'd put, you could probably, you still would have to field a roster and, and bring in some guys. But, you know, you might be able to finish up five million over the tax that level that i'm talking about here but then you've got uh, on your books seven million next year and seven million the year after that you uh one year left in the contract so you stretch it over three years so breaking into your 2019 cap space by seven million that hurts that definitely hurts same thing in 2021 they could also be players but you you know you have to think that with their financial constraints this year I don't see anyone on the free agent market who is really going to be a part of this long-term core. I mean, I think that's the other thing that they have to realize here. And it's going to be tough with the the pressure to make the playoffs. It does seem like there's a little bit of short-sightedness in this organization. But, you know, Nikola Jokic is, what, 22, 23? Jamal Murray is me as age 22 season. I mean, Gary Harris is still very young. He, He starts that extension this year. But that's not, you know, a bad extension. That's your three-man core. You would like to add one more big piece uh, before the end of the 2020 free agency period because that's when Murray would need an extension as well. But, you know, there's no huge need here to do something big at this moment. You know, that's really that's not required at this point because this is a team that's got a long future ahead of it and they brought in Millsap to kind of turbocharge things a little bit it didn't really work in part because he was injured so now they gotta wait for some of this salary to expire that they signed you know that was bad in the last couple of years and maybe you're ready to go in 2019 so but like to me Will Barton unless you get him on a really good deal he's not like a make or break kind of piece uh for this team going forward um, anything else you want to talk about? I guess we could talk about Jokic a little bit. His agent has had a couple of comments in the media, basically like, yeah, they damn well better decline that option, which would indicate that that they have not at least committed to do that yet, which is interesting. Like that'll be an interesting negotiation. Uh, and maybe a fair one would be, you know, he signs for slightly less than the max. Oh, by the way, if, if they, if they pick up that team option, how quickly would you demand a trade? I mean, I would, I, I would be very upset. <laughs> I mean, there'd be a lot of like basically what I if, if they pick up that option, what I would say is I will not resign with you under any circumstances. So if another team is interested in me, I might be I might be willing to resign there. I would do that within five minutes of the announcement. Yeah, well, and you, you probably also already said that, even if you don't mean it. So true. Uh, yeah, yeah. So and 
there is a little risk there for Jokic. He could get hurt. He could not improve. Their defense could suck again this year. There are a lot of good centers out there, you know, in this particular era. There are not as many teams that need centers. There is a little bit of a risk there for him. So like I said, I mean, it might be fair for him to take a slight discount off of just the straight up five-year max or give some other kind of concession, but not much of one (laughs) to be sure. And if you really believe in this guy as, you know, your max player centerpiece of your franchise, which, eh, you know, I mean, I'm not sure how far they can go with him as that frankly we just due to his defensive limitations but you know he's still a really talented player he's a top 30 player in the nba at this point so that's, that's the type of player you want to hold on to um in the draft i think they're probably going to be a little bit too low for either of the bridges which uh, would in theory again I, I haven't watched film of these guys but just in theory what they're supposed to be uh shy G- gilgis alexander would also be like a nice option as a defender as a combo guard play some backup point guard for them be part of a three guard rotation with murray and harris but he'll probably be gone then as well um you know kevin knox will probably be right around there knox is not he's a little bit more of like a combo forward not really like the guy that's considered a lockdown defender he has tools but he's not deemed to have that level of focus at this point but maybe he could be grown into that but per usual not a ton of guys you know, maybe Troy Brown would be someone they could look at. I'm just looking at the mock draft right now. There are some wing players who are in their range, but we're not talking about that guy being a contributor likely for next year. But just, just got you got to take a swing and get someone in the pipeline, uh, unless there's just someone you think is unbelievable uh, at that pick, which I don't think there will be. And after missing out on OG Ananobi and Donovan Mitchell last year, uh, they are certainly going to be trying to rectify that this year in the draft but good luck getting someone as good as either of those two guys oh one quick thing we should mention i don't think we're going to see it but trey lyles is eligible for an extension this year i thought he did a nice job in his first season with them but uh 10 10 million dollar hold so there is an incentive to get something below that but they're going to have to figure out a lot of this first and depending on what the timeline is and what lyles wants an extension i don't think it's likely but it's worth yeah especially if they have designs uh, on 2019 and especially extending a guy i mean unless it's just extremely team friendly i think there's little reason to do that when paul Millsap is obviously your starting power forward as well i mean, maybe they could try to just trade mason plumley there'll be a team that like might want him uh to just take him but i i again really really doubt that hey maybe they could trade him back to portland portland needs a center as a stopgap for huh. a couple of years relatively cost controlled if uh they just can't come to an agreement with Nurkic, but that uh I, I i don't see portland doing that uh so let's talk briefly though about just what's out there in the free agent market i mean if we're it's hard to see any situation in which they would be giving out a contract for more than the taxpayer mid-level but uh, for someone who would be available that could help them then i mean the backup point guard market maybe a return of Jameer Nelson might be something that, that they would consider. They definitely did him a solid, in theory, by waiving him rather than just trading him somewhere. Harris maybe could be a candidate to re-sign Devin Harris. They're, you know, the Raven Felton type of range. Seth Curry, uh, although, like, they part of the problem with backup point guard, too, is just, like, you need someone dependable. Like, you can't have someone who's an injury risk as your main backup point guard because, as you've noted many times, just not... Like, backup point guards are a dime a dozen until but if you get stuck being one of the six teams that just doesn't have one like charlotte last year it can just completely torpedo your season i could see them being a jared jack destination yeah. 
and also the potential triumphant return of Ty Lawson. Uh, yeah, that's not going to happen. I would be absolutely shocked given his personal problems there if they want to go back down that road once more. Maybe Tyler Ennis is someone they could take a low-cost flyer on. Oh, they could be a Shelvin Mack team. Yeah, yeah, Shelvin Mack, Brandon Jennings. You know, there, there are guys out there, but... I'm trying to think of. I was trying to think if they have a, a trade exception or any or uh, anything to claim. I guess they could just straight up to claim Brandon Jennings off waivers because if if Milwaukee ends up to cl- ends up cutting him because I believe that's structured as a non guarantee. Yeah. Uh, you know, we said this for a couple of teams. It's crazy to think about, but Vince Carter could be a decent fit there for give them a little more wing depth. They they definitely like having. You know, they had Richard Jefferson last year. They like they had Mike Miller before. They like having kind of that one old vet to be a, a good influence. I don't think they're going to have enough money to get into the Luke and Bahamute sweepstakes. Joe Johnson might be a possibility to give them like a little scoring off the bench. He's not going to help their defense, but... All right, I think we're running out of steam here. Anything else you want to say about these guys? Nope. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.